Where does yesterday's future, which is already here, ready here, ready here, ready here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away? Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now. Where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech-driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host, who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham. (laughs) I feel so important taking you into the future of now. That is the voice of my co-producer, the esteemed VP of, I call him VP of everything at World Talk Radio, Voice America, Ryan Treasure. Thank you, Ryan. He says, here now, here now, here now, and I just get goosebumps. So let's see what the word on the street is today. I have a quote from a gentleman in India. I don't have his name. He wrote a blog on a website called Your Story. Y-O-U-R-S-T-O-R-Y dot com. And let me read a little bit of what he wrote, and then I will tell you more about what we're discussing today. Very exciting topic. Those of you with big ideas around the world, you want to listen up. If you know somebody who has a big idea, wants to do something with it, maybe make some money from it, you got to tell them about this show, and you can find us on Technology Revolution, the future of now at voiceamerica.com. So here's the quote. Even incubators and accelerators in India that have been around for years and have, quote-unquote, processed more than 50 startups, usually don't have even one startup that has achieved impressive revenues or valuations. Oh, my goodness, just let that sink in. The key words here are incubators and accelerators, and the other key word is startup. So let's look a little bit at a reality check. Sadly, 90% of all startups fail. Boo-hoo, if you have one and it hasn't gone anywhere, it might have been fun along the ride, but you didn't get to do what you were hoping to do, and the world just wasn't ready for it, or you just didn't know what the world wanted. Are they doomed from the start? And based on research I've done, likely, yes, they're doomed if they worked with accelerators. Why? Accelerators typically invest low seed capital, we're talking 25000 U.S. dollars to about 125000 They usually invest low amounts of seed capital in multiple startups. They spread it around for a 12-week mentoring program. And what's the expectation? Well, demo day comes. Investors walk in the door, and most of those investors are going to walk out without even opening their wallets. So it's called flop. What can I tell you? This is not poker. This is flop. So if you're a wannabe entrepreneur or a serial entrepreneur with your eye on that next big prize, there's another their path come to the picture Venture Studios it was a brand new concept for me until a few weeks ago Venture Studios dawned in the late aughts that's the zero zeros of the 2000s what happened successful exit that means people who sold their startup and made a lot of money successful exit tech entrepreneurs got together groups of experts and investors on their own and they created their own ventures or they took startups that had been through the incubator world through the accelerator world through the post corporate innovation lab world and they helped to commercialize them and they made money at it. So we have three panelists on the show today. I have Don Deloche at Rocket Wagon Ventures Studios. That's where the topic came from. Chris Morgan at Lantern Partners and Chris Resendis at Spherical Analytics for their take on the topic. So our topic officially is hatching your big idea, venture studios and startup success. Welcome again. I'm Bonnie in the house and let's go around the table and find out who our special panelists are today. Don Deloche, how are you? And in case there's one person in the listening audience, Don, who doesn't know who you are, which would be almost impossible. Don, tell us who you are and tell us about Rocket Wagon. How are you, Don? Yeah, hi, Bonnie. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Okay, so yeah, like Bonnie said, I'm Don Deloche. I'm the uh, founder and CEO of Rocket Wagon Venture Studios. Um, I've been sort of a serial entrepreneur running venture-backed companies for, for the last 20 years. And uh, we started Rocket Wagon Venture Studios last year. <clears throat> and the idea behind this is exactly what Bonnie was saying. It's a group of entrepreneurs who have kind of been there and done that, who come together and will accept startups into a, a Rocket Wagon Venture Studio to take them through to commercialization. We are predominantly cyber-physical focused, so I've been really active in the IoT world for about the last 10 years and very passionate about it. And, and because IoT is relatively complex and it really needs sort of a holistic view, it's easy for startups to make mistakes when trying to bring IoT companies to the market. So we're combining people who are experienced entrepreneurs with people who have 
uh, understanding of IoT systems and cyber-physical systems, and, and we believe that that collection of expertise can be really beneficial for helping startups that have great potential that might otherwise be in the ditch because of certain execution risk to have additional guidance and help to getting to the commercialization stage. Thank you, Don. Quick question for you. We are now in the middle of a pandemic around the world. Businesses have closed or they are semi-closed. They're looking at reprioritizing, how to restart, how to get people back to work, all kinds of things we never thought in our lifetimes we would see. Is this a good time for startups? It would seem to me that there would be a void that needs to be filled with new ideas. And take that answer, please, beyond just the IoT world, which your company specializes in. Is this a good time for startups to be uh, basically putting their pedal down, their metal down, getting that drawing board out and saying, yes, I think I can help solve this problem. What do you think? Uh, boy, that's a, that, that, I can answer <laughs> that with just 90 minutes. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, okay. it's, a good t- I mean it's a time where a, a lot of people need to be thinking about how is this world going to change and, and what can I do as an entrepreneur to provide solutions to that? But if you broaden the question to is it a good time to be a startup, there are so many, many, many startups out there that are sort of just getting out that made assumptions about what the world was going to be like, you know, three months ago, six months ago, a year ago, that are now just running into a massive wall, and it's going to create all kinds of issues, not the least of which are a much more exaggerated failure rate as a result of capital drying up, as a result of challenges that just weren't anticipated. So it, on, the, on the whole, it's not a great time to be a startup. It is a good time to be a startup looking forward at the world we're going to. Thank you. Very thoughtful answer. You did it less than 90 minutes. I appreciate that, Don Deloach. Thank you. And, Don, thanks for bringing the panel together. Let's move around to a newcomer to me. His name is Chris Morgan with Lantern Partners. Chris, welcome to the show. And why don't you tell us who you are, what you do, and what does this topic mean to you? Chris Morgan. Hi, Bonnie. Um, well, I, first of all, I'd like to say I find this to be incredibly unfair following Don DeLoach on the topic of <laughs> Venture Studios. is a little bit like following Frank Sinatra on, on American Idol. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I'm, I'm the founding and managing partner of Lantern Partners. We're a retained senior executive recruiting firm based in Chicago. And uh, I recruit CEOs and their direct reports for tech and tech-enabled services companies. And all of those are either venture capital backed or private equity owned. So I've been recruiting CEOs for tech companies for about 23 years now. And uh, I have watched the venture capital and private equity landscape morph uh, quite a bit over those years. And I'm excited about watching it continue to morph as early stage companies continue to want more and more out of their investors than just than just funding. They need more help. They need more uh, oversight. They need more go-to-market experience and expertise than ever before, and I'm excited to watch that happen. Chris Morgan, would you say that accelerators should be or are on their way out, that incubators are eh, and that Venture Studios is going to be the place to go? We're not promoting anybody's company here, but what do you think? Absolutely, 100%. I, I just I don't think that those other models, including the traditional venture capital model uh, provides a lot of uh, early stage opportunities or early stage ideas, the kinds of resources that they need to succeed. Thank you. And is this a good or bad time? I'll, I'll paraphrase and give you a shorter version of what I asked Don Deloach. Is this a good time for a startup in tech, especially to say, wow, I've got the next great idea, whether it's a pandemic solution or whether it's just something that maybe they think we need in our kitchen when we all are able to go back to the store and buy whatever we want. Any thoughts on that, Chris Morgan? Yeah, from what I'm seeing, those that have ample funding or adequate funding right now are, are seeing continued success and are able to continue to go to market and, and be successful. But uh, those that are requiring funding right now are seeing a little bit of uh, resistance in the market, and that probably won't let up for the next you know six months or so would be my guess, unfortunately. Thank you. I've seen some interesting blurbs on Twitter uh, in the past couple weeks saying to people, well, you're home, you might be out of work or less work. Now's the time to put that idea together. So I guess it's something to do. We'll just leave it at that. It's a good time to think about ideas. Thank you. Good night. 
nice to meet you. Chris Resendez, I said, Chris, about a couple of months ago, I said to the third or fourth panelist on the show, so-and-so is waiting patiently, and it was his turn, and he said, how do you know I'm patient? And so I try not to say that, but I just did. Chris Resendez, welcome back. You've been on radio shows with me before. Tell us who you are and what you do in case there's two people in the world who don't remember you. Go ahead, Chris R. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. My name is Chris Resendez. I'm the chief business officer at Spherical Analytics. Uh, we are a, we're a technology company that is helping to bring together the traditional productivity metrics and financial metrics of businesses with the emerging collection of ESG, or environmental, social, and governance metrics of business, so that uh, instead of having triple bottom line or sort of uh, traditional for-profit business and philanthropy, we're trying to help investors and businesses make sure that the meaningful metrics are just as important, just as quantified, uh, and just as bankable as the traditional productivity and financial metrics. And we're doing this in big industries that have big physical footprints, um, that have big environmental impacts, that have big social impacts. We're trying to break through that, that crusty old for-profit or philanthropic do well or do good, and we're trying to do it with data. And I'm happy to be here. Chris, we're always happy to have you on, and you corrected me without correcting me on your last name, Resendiz. I will get it right, I promise. Don't give me a pass on what I said in the opening. Chris, how did your company get its name? Spherical, and there's a vertical line, and then analytics. That's an interesting way to put two words together. So is the company about spherical? Is it about analytics? Is it an intersection? Give me a little verbal here on what I'm looking at visually. Sure. So the primary... Uh, vision of the company is to focus on climate, environment, natural resources risk, and that translates for investors or for businesses in something called physical risk or transition risk. And the idea of being spherical is looking at not just the planet as a sphere, but the multiple dimensions of business. Too many historical business analysis, risk analysis, and investment analysis models are spreadsheets, X, Y two dimensions. Mm -hmm. I think going forward, and one of the reasons why I'm happy to be here to talk about Venture Studios is success in the future is going to be about many integrating or intersecting many more dimensions than just the XY. And so the concept of spherical was if it's about climate, environment, natural resource, risk mitigation, and being more profitable by being more regenerative with the planet, we're concerned with the sphere. It has at least three dimensions. And in fact, a lot of the work we do has end dimensions of risk and opportunity, and you might have to find seven different partners or address seven different issues to find the intersection that the world is prepared to invest in, because the old world of one application to do one thing or one investment to have one impact, I think that's probably one of the reasons why the old venture models have failed. Thank you. I feel like I just went back to school. That was very, very interesting, Chris Rezendis. I really appreciate that, and I think I understood about 30% of what you said, and I feel smarter for that 30%. Quick question for you. Good time to be a startup? Not a good time to be a startup from your unique POV. What do you think? I think it's only a great time to be a startup if you understand that today there are urgencies that need to be addressed. And uh, if you're not focused on those urgencies, then it's probably a pretty hard time. 20 years ago, productivity was the killer app. 10 years ago, convenience was the killer app. Today, resilience and recovery is the killer app. If that's your business, I think it's a, a good time, maybe a great time. But if you're not in the business of resilience and recovery, I think it's probably a pretty challenging time to be a startup. That was very politely worded. Thank you very much. I, I think I know what you really wanted to say. Thank you, Chris Rezendi. See, I'm practicing your name over and over again. Thank you. Great introductions from the three panelists. And again, thank you to Don Deloach for bringing everybody together. Don, before I do my my advertisement, we have uh, Plume is back as a special advertiser on the show today. I'd like to go into the quote you sent me. And for those of you who happen to be new listeners around the world and you're listening to Technology Revolution, the Future of Now, I ask my panelists in advance to send me a quote that is eh, technically not on the topic of the day. And today our topic is hatching new ideas, your big idea. 
where should you take it? Success, startup, venture studios, we think those go together into a, a nice formula for success. But I asked him for a quote, and let me just do Don's quote before I do the ad. So Don has sent us a quote from Buckminster Fuller, uh, fondly known to millions around the world as Bucky Fuller. I think you know that, Don. Richard Buckminster Fuller, 1895 to 1983, was a renowned American architect, systems theorist, author, designer, inventor, and futurist. I love the bios from the old days. You know, I don't know anybody who has a bio like that today. Fuller published more than 30 books, and he coined such popular terms as spaceship earth, dimaxion, I don't know what that means, ephemeralization, I've heard of that, synergetic, and tensegrity. He developed inventions, mostly architectural designs, and he popularized what used to be very commonly called the geodesic dome. And there are carbon molecules called fullerenes. Get it, Buckminster Fuller? Named by scientists for their structure that resembled the geodesic dome. And Fuller was the second world president of Mensa from 74 to 1983. I was a Mensa member for a while. I probably am a lifelong member, but no bragging rights here. Don DeLoach, here's the quote you sent me from Bucky Fuller. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Wow, Don, talk to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I I think that as we go forward with technology, as we go forward, you know, even from a societal standpoint, there are there are these sort of accepted norms that people say, well, this is this is just how it is, and I think the how it is um, increasingly becomes problematic when certain things happen. So, so things like climate change, um, uh, uh, cyber physical transformation, these are examples of, of of elements in the world that need people to think on a different level in order to take things forward. So, so when you think about, you know, how do we, uh, Chris, Chris actually referenced this, this before, it's, there, there is false trade-offs. Well, well, I can't have, for example, I can't have um, um, clean water and carbon energy, but, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily true, but you have to start thinking on a different level. And I think as we go now, relating it back to to you know commercializing startups and 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 fostering innovation, I think that there have been certain norms that we have subscribed to that aren't necessarily working, and we have to think about you know or rethink how do we go about it, and and what are the areas we need to address on so many different dimensions: the 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 technology dimension, the people dimension, the societal dimension. And it just requires different thinking. And I thought the, the Bucky books were, were, you know, a pretty good example of, you know, thinking on a bigger scale in terms of how to create structures that supersede the, the previous establishment in order to do the right thing going forward. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that uh, that quote. Thank you. And I'm sure there were lots of quotable moments in Bucky Fuller's books. And now let's just take a quick promotional break. I want to welcome back our advertiser for many weeks now, Plume, P-L-U-M-E. Plume is a cloud-based software company specializing in a suite of smart home services. Plume is more than just an evolution of what some of you call mesh Wi-Fi. Plume offers hardware called Pods, P-O-D-S, that provide Wi-Fi coverage throughout your entire house if it's needed. Plume gives you great Wi-Fi and network security, and guess what? It's seamlessly integrated with the network you already have. Here's a personal note. My co-producer, Ryan, you heard his voice at the beginning of the show at Voice America Radio. He uses Plume. He tells me that his streaming speed has increased because he enjoys Netflix and online video games because Plume's advanced self-optimization of adaptive Wi-Fi makes sure the parts of his home that use more Internet Guess what? They're given more bandwidth. That makes sense. No more buffering. And forget about that spinning wheel of death. No more. Ryan uses Plume's parental controls to monitor his six-year-old's internet usage. Yes, six-year-olds are using the internet. He can customize the rules for her devices. Yes, she has devices to control when she can get on the internet and the kind of content she is allowed to and not allowed to access. And he can even schedule internet freeze or a timeout 
for school nights and family time. Plume suite of services include blazing, fast, flawless Wi-Fi, advanced cybersecurity for your devices and your whole network, personalized content, personalized parental access controls, and all-new motion detector, and that's really cool. So here's what you can do. It's easy to subscribe to Plume, and again, it's P-L-U-M-E. Plume is offering two years of membership to my listeners. That's right, my listeners for 50% off. Actually, it's a little better than 50% off. Instead of paying $99 a year, you pay $49 a year for two years. Because Plume understands this is a tough time financially for many of our listeners around the world during the pandemic. Here's how you do it. Go to Plume, P-L-U-M-E dot com slash tech revolution, and the special discount will be applied at checkout. It's very, very easy. So here again, Plume, P-L-U-M-E dot com slash, and I'll spell this for you, T-E-C-H-R-E-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N, and I'll give you a reminder of that code at the end of the show. Thank you very much, Plume, for being our sponsor for so many weeks. And now let's get back to the show. So we're moving around the table to Chris Morgan at Lantern Partners. And Chris has sent us a quote, very interesting quote, from Laura Hillenbrand. And let me read a little background on her before I read the quote, Chris. Lauren Hillenbrand born in 1967, I get to call her a very young woman, is an American author of books and magazine articles. She wrote two best-selling nonfiction books, Seabiscuit, an American legend in 2001, and Unbroken, a World War II story of survival, resilience, says that our word, resilience and redemption in 2010. Her books have sold over 13 million copies. And if you think about it, gentlemen on the panel, an author with a new book is like a startup, right? Looking for buyers, looking for an audience. And each of her books was adapted for film. They say her writing style is distinct from new journalism. She drops what's called verbal pyrotechnics in favor of a stronger focus on the story. An interesting sidebar, Hillenbrand fell ill in college and couldn't complete her degree. She wrote an essay, A Sudden Illness, that The New Yorker published in 2003, and her books were written while she was disabled. Bob Schieffer said to her a couple of years ago in an interview, To me, your story, Battling Your Disease, is as compelling as Louis Zamperini's story, and I'll let all of you look that up. Here's the quote. A lifetime of glory is worth a moment of pain. Chris Morgan, where does this come from? Why did you pick this for our topic today? Well, I, I, I picked this for our topic today, first of all, because it's, it's my favorite book. Um, it's a book about Louis Zamperini, who is a gentleman who overcame a tremendous amount of uh, pain and, and over, overcame a tremendous number of obstacles in order to get through life. Um, I won't go into all of them here, but because this show is about venture studios and somewhat about entrepreneurship, I kind of felt like this was a phrase, especially nowadays, that entrepreneurs either knowingly or unknowingly say to themselves over and over and over again. Um, most entrepreneurs don't jump into new ventures for the money. Um, they mm-hmm. do it for the glory of building something new, building something meaningful, building something different. And there are lots of pain points along the way, a tremendous number of pain points along the way. But those that are successful are the ones that keep their eyes on the prize, so to speak, and continue to fight through those painful moments to success. Thank you very much. I appreciate the introduction to her. I was not aware of her, and thank you for giving me the reference to Lou Zamperini. I appreciate that very much, Louis. Thank you, Chris Morgan. Let's move one stop around the table to Chris Rezendiz, and he sent us a quote from you, too. The lyrics to the song, Acrobat, and let me just read a little background in case... Chris, there's one person in the world who doesn't know U2. U2 is a rock band, and Acrobat is the 11th track on their 1991, boy, that goes back in time, 1991 album, Achtung, Baby. The song developed from a riff created by guitarist The Edge, and now we use Edge in a computing term. And the riff is played in a 12 eighth time signature. Lyrically, the song expresses themes of hypocrisy, alienation, and moral confusion. Although Acrobat was rehearsed prior to the third part of the Zoo TV tour, it had not been performed live until its debut on the Experience Plus Innocent tour in May 2018. And YouTube is, they don't say is, it's R, an Irish rock band from Dublin featuring Bono, who doesn't know Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton, and Larry Mullen Jr. Here's the quote. In dreams become responsibilities. Ooh, Chris, this is deep. Talk to me. <laughs> well, uh, gee, how obnoxious can I be uh, to think that I could explain anything that uh, you two has offered? Uh, well, 
Uh, riffing off of, uh, of what Chris M said, entrepreneurship is about creation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's as fundamental to being a human. I think it's more fundamental to being a human creation than is to consuming. And so I think, well, I know I don't like the word consumer. I know that I don't like the concept that the economy is driven primarily by consumers and consumption. And when I think about entrepreneurs and I think about creation, I think it comes from a dream. And what I love about this quote is that I think everyone does dream. Everyone has dreams. And from a very simple perspective of being a human and being true to yourself and, 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 and just being what you think you are supposed to be and doing what you think you're supposed to be doing, those dreams you have about yourself and who you should be and what you should do, they should be in some way considered responsibilities to do something about them. Because if you dream about something or you dream about becoming something and you don't do anything about it, it's just my humble opinion that at some point you're going to experience regret. Uh, from that regret, you might experience anger or anxiety and all kinds of bad things that you never imagined you would be or do, I think, can come from not accepting and embracing the responsibility of your dreams. In other words, I don't want to sound too mushy, but being quiet and listening to the core of who someone is as they go about launching an entrepreneur's journey about creating something, mm-hmm. I think the most fundamental thing we can do is act on it, uh, listen to it, um, and, and accept it as a responsibility. Uh, we're here for purpose. We're here for reason. We connect with people for same. And uh, what I like about this is it causes me to make sure that if I have a thought or an idea about something and it's good in that it helps other people and that it achieves maybe the greatest good possible for me, then I owe it, not just to myself or my parents or my kids, but to, you know, as much of humanity as I'm exposed to, to do something about it or share it with someone else who can. That's my idea. I, I love the way you express that. I'm marveling. That was very deep, Chris Rezendis. That was really, really deep. Thank you. I think we have a whole other show coming out of that one, the idea of responsibility for our dreams. We'll talk about that later. Thank you, gentlemen. Great quotes. Really appreciate that. Now it's time for us to dive into the predictions part of the show. We've got about 25 minutes left, so let's see how much we can cover. Don Deloach, you, I'm going to start with prediction number one from you, which is just directly about our topic. And if you're just tuning in, this is Technology Revolution, the Future of Now, Now, Now. And our topic is hatching your big idea. And I should have said succeeding or monetizing with your big idea, venture studios and startup success. So here is Don Deloach's first prediction. And this is very, very appropriate for our topic. He says, disparate elements in the innovation ecosystem, like incubators and accelerators, will form alliances where they are deliberately and methodically linked together. Let me read one more line here. The most logical will be between accelerator cohorts and venture studios, where the exit expectations of the cohort will be aligned with the acceptance criteria of the venture studios. Don Deloach, I'm going to use a term they use on the news all the time. Would you please unpack this for me? Go ahead. (laughs) Sure. Um, So when I first started Rocket Wagon Venture Studios, I was completely enthralled with the idea of the venture studio. And the model basically said, we either hatch the idea internally or we take in a startup at the idea on the napkin phase and bring it through. And, and that, was, that was my being so enthralled with the idea because I felt like the idea of the team of entrepreneurs wrapped around the startup made so much sense. And, and that caused me to kind of look at the ecosystem with a little bit of disdain. Well, well, accelerators can't do this or incubators can't do that. That was hubris on my part. And the, the, the more time I spent interacting with others in the ecosystem, the more I began to realize that it, 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 Venture Studios aren't the thing. They are a thing that's a part of a broader ecosystem where various players and various functions have roles. It's like, it's like a a hockey team out on the ice. You don't put six goalies out on the ice or six forwards out on the ice. You, you have a variety of functions that are designed to work together. And, and the more I study innovation and the more I interact with people who are running accelerators, who are running corporate labs, who are running incubators, the more I realize that if you step back 
and you and you understand where there are logical linkages, the holistic approach can be the rising tide that lifts all ships. And when I think about Venture Studios, I actually think some of the most successful rendering of Venture Studios will ultimately become, and this is the prediction, become alliances that might have an accelerator that is bringing a cohort through that mm-hmm. is then taking maybe the top three uh, uh, participants in a cohort and then, and then giving them acceptance into a venture studio for the commercialization phase. And, and the analogy I draw is that, you know, if, if I'm a surgeon and I am trying to, you know, become a, a neurosurgeon, but I'm a student, I, I go to school and I live in a dormitory. That's, a, that's an incubator. And then I go to classes with all the other you know, people that live in my dormitory who are aspiring neurosurgeons, and that's med school. But nobody mm-hmm. graduates from med school and goes to the surgical theater and starts operating on their own. They, if you're a neurosurgeon, you've got about six or seven more years of internship and then a long residency where you practice your trade along people who have been there and done that. That way you're not killing people on the surgical table because mm-hmm. your inexperience is taking over. That is the cohesive nature of, of producing surgeons, and I would, I would say that's a great analogy for how the innovation ecosystem can be linked together to produce successful startups. Thank you, Don. Fascinating. I followed everything, and I, I, I love the, I'm going to say, do or die metaphor, the example in real life of the neurosurgeon, and thank God they don't let them pick up that scalpel on day one right out of med school. Very interesting. Let me go to Chris Morgan. Chris, I, I'm tempted to do uh, prediction number three, but I'm going to start with prediction number one for you. So you say to me, you said to me before the show, the Venture Studio model will enable us to address some of society's most vexing problems more effectively. And you list climate change, pandemics, woohoo, security, and more. You say the era of the VC venture capital-backed college student or the large corporation trying to tackle these issues is over. Chris Morgan, please unpack this for us. Yeah, well, a lot of my predictions are talent-oriented because of what I do for a living, obviously. And mm-hmm. um, this is pretty simple, especially if you look back to what Don was just mentioning about the sort of the internship model of the venture studio. Um, if, you, if you look at some of the more pressing problems that we have before us, the venture studio model allows for uh, subject matter experts and business experts to come together in order to support those with the ideas in order to quickly test and commercialize those ideas, right? Long, long gone are the days where a, a college student in a college dorm can come up with an idea for how to solve climate change, can get some venture capital money, and he or she and their friends can solve that problem for us. Those kinds of problems, frankly, are just too severe. They're just too large to solve. So, and, and based upon what I do, um, I've, I've found that those with the best ideas are often the least qualified to commercialize those mm. ideas. One of the reasons why I exist. <laughs> one of the okay. reasons why senior executive. One of the reasons why <laughs> senior executive recruiters exist is I replace founders with more qualified CEOs, and so. <clears throat> If we can build an internship sort of ecosystem, as Don was alluding to before, where we can keep that uh, passion of the founder and support that passion with the expertise of subject matter experts and business experts in order to commercialize more effectively, that is a much more effective model than the traditional venture capital model or accelerator model that we've seen in the past. And then just to tack on to that, you know, the large corporations aren't aren't going to solve our problems for us more than likely because they're ROI driven and their ROI driven models um, don't allow for all good or important ideas to have you know an immediate impact or return and therefore they're not widely accepted within large corporate environments so they're not going to be the first to innovate either so I, I truly believe that the um, the venture studio model is going to be the source for some of our best and most important innovations over the course of the next 10 to 20 years. 
Thank you very much. Very interesting. Chris Rezendis, I'm looking at your predictions. I was going to pick number four, which talks about subject matter, matter experts, but I think Chris Morgan just addressed that. Would you like to add something to that one, Chris Rezendis? You have a, let me just read what you said. You said SMEs, subject matter experts from across a spectrum of disciplines will be required to participate and deeply in the growth and development of new companies going forward. Parachuting into industries, disrupting and dominating will be even more rare in most cases. Once you tackle the parachuting versus disrupting and dominating, Chris, I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. Uh, well, I, I agree with everything that, that Don and Chris said and um, transitioning to where I am. <laughs> I'm going to try to be shorter. Uh, but I, look, Bonnie, I am who I am. So I learned how to be a little bit more successful than the average innovator in the Internet of Things, especially around impact over the past few years in part because I learned how to listen. I learned how to mm-hmm. listen to firefighters and first responders, to fishermen, and First Nations. Uh, we've done work in some of the hardest communities in North America, uh, with indigenous community in Pine Ridge, and we've worked with some of the most advanced technologists in the world from three-letter agencies. And regardless, what we learned was the 80s, 90s, and maybe early aughts model of the hoodie-wearing, tech-edge, young person who maybe doesn't know and doesn't care what exists. They're parachuting in with headphones on to solve your problems. Um, That's not just passe. It's, in fact, been quite damaging. And so what I think has been successful for me, because I've learned from other people, and what I'm trying to promote others to do is to walk in, don't parachute, to listen, don't preach, and to, when you do listen, listen to every one of the different stakeholders who have different lenses on the experience. They have different levels of expertise, they have different experiences, they have different skill sets, resources, and access. And what has happened too often is uh, people have reverted to what Steve Jobs said. I don't don't do market research. Why would I listen to my customers? They don't know what they want. I'm going to tell them what they want. We have Mm -hmm. overused it, we have misapplied it, we've bastardized it. The second thing I'll say is when we talk about multiple stakeholders, we sometimes get poo-pooed by the go fast, go fast, disrupt, fail fast culture that has come out of primarily Silicon Valley. And they say, if you have too many people at the table, you slow the process down. And oh, by the way, trying to build a coalition, a rainbow coalition, isn't that like a false application of like affirmative action? We have too many people that don't give the concept the time it deserves when we talk about skills and experiences, when we talk about interests and shared or unique liabilities or opportunities. We're not talking specifically about gender, race, ethnicity, culture, et cetera. We're talking about listen to people. We're talking about head, heart, spine more than we're talking mm-hmm. about other factors. We're talking about true expertise needing to be at the table to help not just throw babies out with bathwater, disrupt for disruption's sake, but literally figure out what's working from the people who would know, preserve it, augment it, extend it, and then add. And so that's my view that I've been taught and has been, I think, a little more successful for some of my clients and partners than some of the older methods that Don and and, and Chris are talking about also. Thank you, Chris Rizandi's Interesting and listening was one of the key words I got from what you said. Thank you. I'm so impressed with all three of you. We have a little more time left, uh, actually about 15 minutes. So, Don Deloach, I'm going to go to your prediction number two. I like this one. You say Venture Studios will become a key contributing element of many university ecosystems. Universities, by definition, are where knowledge is created and nurtured. I'm not going to read anymore because this is long. Don, why don't you give us a perspective on, on uh, will there be such a thing as majoring in a venture studio or doing an internship in a venture studio in your sophomore year, or will it be part of a curriculum where anybody, let's say, in a tech major will be required to go into a venture studio model and learn how it works? What's your thought on that, Don? Um, Well, first of all, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, venture studios will play a role in terms of entrepreneurial research as well as offerings for students and faculty to take part in the process as a part of either the curriculum and or um, offerings of of universities to help prepare students and help augment the the faculty. So, So the answer to that is absolutely yes. 
Um, I think more at the center of this, though, is, first of all, my hat goes off to all the educators and administrators that are out there right now because I have a lot of interaction with a few different universities, and what they're going through right now is unbelievable. They're running many cities, basically, and they have you know real estate concerns, they have learning delivery concerns, they have enrollment concerns, they have financial concerns, and they're scrambling to figure out what will their world look like, you know, a year from now or two years from now or five years from now. But one of the things that that was true even before the COVID-19 pandemic uh, came about was that there was increasing focus on the university role in terms of innovation. And traditionally, people had thought about that in terms of the IP portfolio from a given university. But more and more, that becomes... A, a function of the startups that are known to come out of the university that are successful, that, that becomes the image and, and the, the cultivated brand. And as student enrollment demographically goes down, as we head towards 2026 mm-hmm. and state funding goes down, there are, there are reasons the universities need to bolster how they address innovation. And so you see a lot of universities who have incubators and accelerators and, and they have partnerships with, with corporations and corporate labs and federal and state labs. And so that this, this ecosystem exists out there. The key gap is really the commercialization gap. And that's where a venture studio plays its role. I go back to the illustration of the residency and the internship. Um, but, but more than that, I go back to if you take a look at the, the elements within an ecosystem surrounding a university, they probably are as far along as any um, as as any place in terms of having elements of an ecosystem that can be begun to be tied together and then augmented with something like a a venture studio because the venture studio is going to increase the odds of getting successful startups, which then plays right into the role of increasing the brand and and the, uh, the stature of the university. So I think the universities will take the innovation ecosystem more and more seriously. And I do think that venture studios will be a logical piece of that overall equation. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Chris Morgan, I'm going to sneak in another prediction from you. You say number four, the venture studio model will help push traditional VCs, venture capitalists, into larger investments at later stages as seed and early stage companies continue to realize that they want and need more money. So what's the prediction for VCs and what we like to call angel investors? What do you see, Chris Morgan, on the future landscape? Yeah, I, I, I think angel investors will continue to invest at, at very early stages for sure. And I, I mean no insult to my venture capital friends or clients <laughs> when I say this. Disclaimer, disclaimer. Um, okay, go ahead. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, but um, venture capitalists um, have a tendency to bring very large networks of service providers and those kinds of things to the table. And they, they bring observations from their other portfolio companies to the table and some general market observations to the table. But I, I, I don't think that anything is as valuable as those multiple moments of pain that I referred to earlier um, that successful entrepreneurs can bring to the table. And I think that um, new entrepreneurs are thirsty for those experiences of subject matter experts and proven entrepreneurs that venture studios can bring to the table um, and enable them to build their companies more successfully. I think there's more to this than just money. There's plenty of money to be raised. That's not the issue. The issue is bringing the right talent and the right perspective to the business or to the opportunity in order to test it quickly and bring it to market more effectively. And there's another layer to this that goes beyond money as well. And this is something that a lot of people don't necessarily see. The investment community has built what I've referred to as an insular microcosm of innovation. And by that, I mean they tend to only want to hire um, for their portfolio companies executives that have proven skills from other venture capital-backed or private equity-owned portfolio companies. So those individuals that have the skills and the perspectives and the subject matter expertise that might be of significant use or substantive benefit to a particular cause or idea are ignored because they don't have the experience 
of working in an early stage venture. So what you end up getting is basically a recycling of the talent from one early stage venture to another over and over and over again. And you have a lot of very talented, um, smart, uh, equipped, gritful people that can seriously contribute well beyond capital to these growth stage businesses. And I believe that the the venture studio model will embrace them more readily, leverage them more effectively, and therefore enable their companies to become more successful uh, more, more readily. Thank you very much. Very interesting approach. Chris Rezendis, I have time for one more prediction. I'm looking at number three. You've already mentioned ESG, but I think that's a theme we need to go back to. You say one of the most important emerging complexities in value-based investment and valuation, ESG, and those of you just tuning in, that's environment, social, governance, an early-stage company that does not make these principles core elements of its vision, its mission, its strategies, its tools, and its methods will take great risk limiting its access to capital and revenue. That's on both sides, getting the money and get the, getting the money in and getting the money back in on the other side. Chris Rezendis, why don't you take about ooh, two minutes to tell me what this all means. What this means is um, demographics on the planet Earth are changing, and um, the capital to invest is changing hands. Mm-hmm. And the people that are becoming bigger decision, a bigger part of the decision-making in the allocation of capital are a much more diverse collection of individuals um, with respect to every way that you might try to characterize a human, but most specifically that they're looking to become values-driven investors, not just valuation-based investors. In other words, they want no sacrifice on the return or growth of capital, and they want no compromise on their principles. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to invest in businesses that will grow with profit, with stability, and that those businesses will not only do no harm, that those businesses will be part of the solutions to mitigate the kind of climate risk we're experiencing, the kind of inequality and exclusion we're experiencing, and be part of the regeneration process. In other words, these investors are not afraid to say, thanks, mom, dad, thanks, grandma, grandpa, I'm I'm thankful for the electric grid that we have today, and I think we can do better. I'm thankful for the freedom of mobility and transportation systems that we have today, and I think we can do better. And these investors, um, back to my original quote, in many ways are taking responsibility for their dreams of having not just a pile of capital that grows, but also a portfolio of contributions that are meaningful. And this is happening today with climate risk showing up on the balance sheets and income statements of virtually every company in the world, either a little bit or a lot. And over time, what's happening is the metrics, the quantification, the models, the analytics, the data are increasingly informing how capital gets allocated. And it's the data about inclusion and inequality and human rights and about carbon decarbonization, about water security and about detoxification in the future the best startup or investment opportunities will be those that don't cause investors to choose between doing well and doing good. They'll have a singular investment or collection of them that enable them to feel good on every dimension about the way they're deploying the capital. The idea of make money and then in time pursue philanthropy is busted. Mm -hmm. It's dead. It's dying. Going forward, there are businesses that can have intention as well as intelligence that can create meaning as well as drive profit and ESG metrics and that quantification is the way that the pragmatic people and the professional investors are going to be deploying. From your lips to everyone's ears. Thank you, Chris Rezendis. We have about six minutes left. And if you were on one of my Game Changer shows, I would say this is time for your crystal ball prediction. But we've been doing predictions during the last, the second half of the show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a proposal that let's say we, we heard, uh, let's say somebody knocks on your door, Don Deloach or Chris Morgan or Chris Rezendis. Somebody knocks on your door and says, I have this new high tech invention and I have a great idea. Nobody's ever done it in the world before. There is a need 
heat, it strikes, it hits all of the ESG, environment, social governance, all of those, those key points, and it's worthy of development and investment. Where would that person go? Would they knock on your door at Rocket Wagon, Don DeLoach, and say, let me in, I have this idea? Would they talk to Lantern Partners? Would they talk to Spherical Analytics? I'm going to give each of you about 45 seconds to tell me where that person should go, if anywhere at all. Don DeLoach, where would you direct this person? Sure. Well, I, I would absolutely tell them to knock on our door. We would, would listen to uh, the the you know, proposition and evaluate it uh, um, against a variety of criteria. But absolutely, we would welcome that. Let me. I, I would like to say one thing about what Chris sure. just said too, because I want to relate mm-hmm. that really quickly to Venture Studios. Go ahead. As we are looking at commercializing startups, ESG is going to play a really key role because the type of people who want to be entrepreneurs generally care and want to make a difference in the world. So increasingly, those are going to be people who are aligned with ESG-related thinking. And then the companies that get involved with Venture Studios are increasingly either being pressured to or, or, or uh, aggressively going into a world where they're, they're framing what they're doing from an ESG perspective. So I do think that, that all of the ESG contemplation, it has to be part of the fabric of Venture Studios as well going forward. And and certainly that's something that, that we absolutely embrace. Thank you very much. So they would knock on your door and you would say, come on in, let's talk, correct? Correct. Okay, good to know. Chris Morgan, what would you say at Lantern Partners if that person knocked on your door? Hey, go bother Don DeLoach, what would you say? <laughs> Sorry. That, that, that is absolutely what I would say. I would say <laughs> Don and any other uh, venture studio. I, I would also introduce them to some uh, angel venture networks that I'm aware of. But, yeah, I would certainly send them to a venture studio uh, like Don's, for sure. Thank you. Chris Resendis, where would you send this person? I would absolutely answer the call, and if there's a way we could help them, we would, technically. But more than that, I would point them in the direction of uh, literally countless and growing uh, venture capital funds, private equity funds, and unfortunately not enough, but a growing number of venture studio-like models. Simple story, about a third of the planet's capital is intended against these kinds of investments. $90 trillion has been committed to these kinds of investments at all phases of of a company's maturity. That means a third of all the money that can be invested is already committed to this. There should be no uh, shortage of firms and funds that would be interested in that brilliant idea. Thank you. And there's one question. We have about three minutes left. Thank you, Chris Rezendis. We have one question that I didn't ask anybody. What does the idea person get out of working with a venture studio? Do they get 10% of the profits from their idea after it goes through the the venture studio process? Uh, Don, maybe you're the best one to answer this. What's in it for the person who knocks on your door with this great idea? What do they get out of it? Uh, Yeah, what they get out of it is a higher probability of success, uh, theoretically at a higher valuation, faster in time, and they, they still retain a majority of the, uh, of the equity. So, so our model would basically say the, the venture studio will, will recover the allocated cost we put into getting them from point A to point B, which, which means we're assuming the risk. We're not, we're not charging them anything mm-hmm. once Got we it. determine to accept them. And then once we get to the end, it's the allocated cost plus 20%. So the entrepreneurs retain the majority of what they're doing, but they get there faster with a higher probability of success. Thank you, Don. It's time for me to close out here. We have a quick call to action for Plume. Plume is offering two years of Plume membership to my listeners for 50% off minus a little bit more. So instead of paying $99 a year, you pay $49 a year USD for two years because Plume understands this is a tough time for many of our listeners financially around the world. Go to Plume, P-L-U-M-E dot com slash tech revolution, T-E-C-H. R-E-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N. The discount will be applied at the checkout. P-L-U-M-E dot com slash tech, T-E-C-H, revolution. Appreciation to my three very, very, very smart panelists. Don DeLoach, what an interesting show we've had. What an interesting ride. Chris Morgan, keep that radio voice, my goodness. And Chris Resendez, always happy to have you back. Shout out to Ryan Treasure, my co-producer and the wonderful voice of the intro. Ryan Keller, my engineer extraordinaire at World Talk Radio, Voice America Radio 
voiceamerica.com, voiceamerica.com, and he's got nerves of steel for a young guy, but he works with me, so there. Thank you for tuning in. Technology revolution, the future of now. And remember, the future of now didn't happen yet. If somebody tells you the future is here, that was yesterday's future. We are all working together to make today's future, and it's going to be great. You're part of it. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Be safe, be smart, and be well. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for Technology Revolution, the future of now. Mark your calendar to join host Bonnie D. Graham every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel to hear how technology is impacting your future now. Bye.